the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by Church of the Redeemer in Gatorsburg, Maryland. Welcome to Practical Living with Dale O'Shield, Senior Pastor of Church of the Redeemer in Maryland. We pray that through this message, you will learn how to apply God's Word and truth to your life. Stay with us as we discover God's truths that will transform us. A negative attitude can be your worst liability in life. A positive attitude can be your greatest assets. We asset. We all need to work on our attitudes. We need to upgrade our attitudes because your attitudes in life is what will take you to the next level. To move to a higher dimension of living, your attitudes have to be adjusted. An attitude is the way you think. It's your mindset about God, your mindset about you, your mindset about other people, your mindset about the world and life around you. It's the way you think, your unconscious approach to living that affects your actions, your behaviors, because every action and behavior is backed up by a way of thinking. It's backed up by a set of attitudes. And Jesus is very concerned about our attitudes. The Apostle Paul makes reference to this in Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 22 and 23, listen to his words. Throw off your old sinful nature. That's who you were before you became a follower of Christ. Throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. And please notice verse 23. Instead, let the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, renew your thoughts and attitudes. God says, I want to work on your thinking. I want to work on your attitudes. And in a number of different places in the Bible, we see a variety of lists of attitudes that you and I need to develop as believers. Spiritual attitudes, psychological attitudes, relational attitudes, work attitudes that need to be a part of how we live our life. One of these lists is found in Second Peter chapter 1, and that's the focal point of this series together, verses 5 through 8. Listen to these eight attitudes that are referenced here by Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit. For this very reason, Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness mutual affection, to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities, or we might say these attitudes, in increasing measure they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Eight attitudes. He says, start with faith. We talked last weekend about faith being the foundational attitude for everything. Without faith, you can't build a foundation for these other important attitudes. And then add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, mutual affection, to mutual affection, love. And if these eight attitudes are in you in increasing measure, they're going to keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. In other words, they're going to take your life to a new level. I love the way the New Living Translation gives us verse number eight. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are the attitudes that need to be developed. Now, we're going to talk this weekend about a very specific attitude. Add 
to your faith goodness. You will not soar. Your life will not rise to a new level of living without goodness. You and I need to become good. Jesus wants you to experience goodness in your life and to be a good person. Let me share with you five ways that you and I need to think and behave and be as God's people if we're going to be good. And again, goodness takes life to a new level. Number one, good people cultivate a good conscience. This is where goodness begins. It begins with your conscience. Now, you and I can't understand good if we don't also understand bad. There is no good without understanding bad, no bad without understanding good. And so inside of us, God placed, as he created us, an internal guidance system, again, given to us by God, that is designed to provide us with the awareness of what's good and what's bad. And that internal guidance system is called your conscience. Every human being is equipped with the capacity to have a conscience on the inside that helps determine what is good and bad, what is right and what is wrong. Now, just because you have a conscience given to you by God doesn't mean that your conscience is functioning, nor does it mean that your conscience is functioning properly. And so we have to make sure that having been given this opportunity for a conscience inside of us, that we make sure that it's functioning and it's functioning well. And for our conscience to function well, there are four things that need to happen because without a good conscience, you'll never be a good person. And the first thing you must understand about a conscience is it needs to be God activated. What I mean by that is this. There needs to be a moment when you've experienced the presence of God in your life in such a way that your conscience has been made alive. Why is this important? Because all of us are born into the world as sinners. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are born into this world as sinful people. We have a nature of sin. And our problem is not just being bad or being sinful. Our problem is because of sin, we're not just bad, we're dead. The Bible says that we're dead in our trespasses and our sins. And so your issue, my issue, is not just that I'm bad. My issue is that before I meet Jesus, I'm dead on the inside. I don't have life inside of me. And so the moment that I acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Savior, that He is the one who died on the cross for my sins, that He rose again from the grave, and I put my personal faith in Christ, there in that moment, there's something that happens inside of me or you in that moment of faith called the new birth. You are born again, and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, and the Spirit of God awakens in you your conscience. God breathes into you life. You're born again. Isn't it a wonderful thing to think that in that moment when you accepted Jesus, you became more alive than you've ever been in your entire life. At that moment when you said, Jesus, I make you Lord of, li- Lord of my life, the one who is the resurrection of the life came into you and you are born again. That's why Jesus said, you must be born again. And so your conscience cannot even function effectively unless you're first and foremost born by the Spirit of God. So I'd ask you this morning, have you been born again? Has there been a time in your life when you've invited Jesus into your heart and life and the Spirit of God, you know, came inside of you and you say, well, how do I know if I've been born again? You know that you're born again because life comes in. You begin to recognize a new dimension of life. You begin to sense things that you didn't sense before. You begin to recognize the things you used to do you don't want to do any longer and things you used to not want to do you now want to do. How many of you know there was a time in your life you would not have been found in church on a Sunday morning for any amount of money? You would have been doing lots of other things, right? 
But something happened when you met Jesus, it changed you, and now you want to come to the house of God. That is a sign in you that says, God is at work in your life. There are things you used to do before you met Christ that you don't do anymore. There are new things that you now do. Why? Because you're born again. And so when you're accepting Christ in your life, there's an activation of your conscience. Your conscience cannot even function effectively without first and foremost being born again. So you need a God-activated conscience, and then you need a God trained conscience. What I mean by that is this, we need to get more of God's truth into our heart and mind that will train or program our conscience to recognize from God's perspective what is right and what is wrong. The world is always giving you its ideas of what is right and wrong. We need God to train our conscience. The software of your soul needs to be programmed by Almighty God. We need a properly trained conscience, a God-activated conscience, a properly trained conscience, and then a Holy Spirit-sensitive conscience. See, when you accepted Christ as Lord of your life, the third person of the Trinity came to live inside of you. This is amazing to consider. It's just awesome to even contemplate the fact that God, the Holy Spirit, came to live inside of you, that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of you, and the Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the expression of God living in you, the personhood of God living in you. And the Holy Spirit, the person of God, has a voice to speak into your life. And if you will listen... He will speak to you. And there has to be a self-reflective process that we engage in. Many times we don't have a clue what we ought to be doing in life because we are so busy doing everything else that we fail to take any time or very little time to be alone with God and just to listen and reflect upon what God wants to say to us in our lives. You know that God will speak if you will listen. And there are times that you and I need to pull away and say, God, what is it that you're trying to teach me in my life? God will help you to begin to recognize and understand what he's trying to do in your life in the moment and in the season. And that that stimulates your conscience and a good conscience makes a good person. Amen. Number two, good people live with honor and with integrity. To be a good person, it's an attitude. It requires an attitude of honor. I'm going to live my life honorably. I'm going to live my life with integrity. An honorable person sets high standards for their life, morally and otherwise. They, they live the right way when people are looking, and they live the right way when people are not looking. They are tough on themselves and tender on others. What I would submit to you today, if you want to be an honorable person, it's okay. Be tough on yourself sometimes and be tender on the people around you. Live with integrity and then provide honor to those to whom honor is due. Live an honorable life. Why? Because good people live with honor and with integrity. Be the real deal. And number three, good people own personal responsibility for their decisions. Taking responsibility for your decisions in life is a part of being good. Good people own what they do. Instead of blaming other people for their choices and their mistakes and excusing things, They own responsibility. Even when they make mistakes, they own the responsibility of it. One of the signs that you haven't learned from a mistake is because you're still blaming somebody for your mistakes, okay? As long as you're blaming somebody else for some mistake in your life and you're shaming and blaming and excusing, it means you can't learn anything from it. And this problem, this tendency that we all have to push off our responsibility goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. 
In the Garden of Eden, God put Adam and Eve in the garden and gave them one rule. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you'll eat it, you're going to die. And so they had one rule to follow. They could eat any tree, they eat any fruit they wanted from any tree, but only one rule in the garden. Of course, you know the story about the serpent came and tempted them and they yielded. And then there was the moment that God shows up and begins to hold them accountable for the moment. I want you to see how Adam and Eve responded and how they handled the moment. Did they own the responsibility for their mistake. Look at what happens. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, this is chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 8, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I was walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Stop there for a moment. Isn't that a simple question? Did you eat the fruit? Did you do it, Adam? Did you eat from the tree of the fruit I told you not to eat from? The man replied, get his reply, it was the woman. God didn't ask anything about a woman. No reference at all to Eve in the previous question, was there? Not a simple illusion to Eve at all, but now we find that instead of owning responsibility, instead of saying, yes, God, I ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he said, it was a woman who gave me fruit, and I ate it. Now then God turns his attention to the woman. The Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. We've got Adam blaming Eve, and Eve blaming the devil, okay? But nowhere in this situation do either of them take responsibility for themselves, Are you hearing me? It's blame shifting. Where did this lead them? It led them out of the garden. I would submit something to you today. What if Adam had said, God, I ate at that that fruit. I should not. I'm sorry. I really made a mistake. I I, I ask you to forgive me. What if Eve had said, God, I I made the mistake. I, I really blew it. What do you think God's response would have been? I don't know for sure, but I would submit to you today that perhaps God in that moment would have brought forgiveness and redemption to them and restoration that perhaps they could have found their way uh, for a future destiny in that garden, but they missed it because they were not willing to own responsibility. Let's look at this in contrast to David when he had sinned in adultery with Bathsheba. Notice how he responds as he's being convicted of his sin. He writes this prayer in Psalm 51, verses 1 through 4. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. You're noticing all these personal pronouns. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night against you. And you only have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. You notice there's no blame shifting at all in David's prayer. He's owning the responsibility. And because of that, he experiences forgiveness and restoration and redemption. Good people own the responsibility for their choices. Number four, good people conduct their lives with excellence. To be good means to be excellent. Actually, the Greek word for goodness that Peter uses in 2 Peter chapter 1, 
actually can be translated excellence. And excellence is something you and I need to pursue in four realms of life. First of all, we need to pursue moral excellence if we're going to be good. That is the morality of your life, the understanding of what values you're going to live your life by, what is right and what is wrong. And the world will try to inundate you with its cultural values and try to water down and, 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 and in some way keep you from a commitment to what God says is right and wrong, but God has given us in His Word clear understanding of the moral values that we ought to live by. If there's a question in your mind in terms of what is right and what is wrong, there's a book that settles that question, and that book is called the Bible. And this book should inform you. Whatever God says in this book is right is right, and what God says in this book is wrong it's wrong, okay? And this is the authoritative, needs to be the authoritative source for your life. It doesn't mean that you and I will always get it right, but we live by this understanding that God has given us something of authority to live our lives by, and my morality is not going to be based upon the world around me. My morality is not going to be based on culture. My morality is not going to be based on what society says is right and wrong. If God says it's right, it's right, and if God says it's wrong, it's wrong. Amen? Okay. And so there's something of security and peace that comes to us when we have an awareness of moral boundaries for our life, that God has established the fences in which we are to live our lives. So we need to pursue moral excellence based upon the values and the morality of God's Word and personal excellence that in our lives, in our work, that we're engaging ourselves in all that God asks us to do at the very best level as possible, not just when people are watching, but even when people are not watching. There's an excellence there in in the relationships of our life that we're doing our best to learn the relationship skills that will enable us to have excellent relationships, not waiting on other people to learn them, but learning them ourselves, taking on the ownership of what Jesus said when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Learn how to live this out in your life with a, a commitment to excellence. There's a person in the Old Testament I'll draw your attention to that lived a life of excellence. And because of that, his goodness, his excellence promoted him to levels of great blessing and destiny in his life. And his name is Daniel. Daniel, as a young man, was taken from his homeland in Judea by King Nebuchadnezzar and brought into Babylon where Israel would spend, or Judah, would spend 70 years in captivity. And and Daniel was one of the young men that first went there uh, to be taken into the king's service. And Daniel showed himself of great wisdom, and there came a moment in the history of Babylon when there was a particular king having a party one night, and everybody's drunk, and everybody's sort of uh, talking about other gods and and all kind of horrible things in terms of morality, and in the midst of it, a hand shows up at the party and begins to write on the wall. It's called the handwriting on the wall. You can read about this in Daniel chapter 5, and so everybody steps back from, what is that? Look at that hand. It's writing on the wall, and nobody could understand what was being written. And so the king calls in all the different advisors and asks them, what is that handwriting all about? No one, no one could understand it. No one could explain it. And then the queen said something to the king. He says, there's a young man. There's a young man in Babylon here. He came from Judea, and his name is Daniel. And he's the one that perhaps can help us. Let's now pick up the story in Daniel 5, verses 11 and 12. This is, these are the words of the queen to the king, that there's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. 
And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him and King Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, inasmuch as an, what kind of spirit? Excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will give the interpretation. In that moment when no one else could provide the answer, they knew that there was a man who could provide the answer because he was a man that lived in excellence, excellence in terms of his personal and work ethic, excellence when it came to his relationships. Daniel had a spirit of excellence about him. This spirit of excellence provided him opportunity for promotion. Look at chapter 6, verse number 3. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. I want you to note that good people conduct their lives with excellence. If you want to be good, you make the choice of saying, I'm going to live my life excellently from a moral standpoint, from a personal standpoint, from a work standpoint, from a relationship standpoint. I want to be good because I know that goodness will take my life to the next level. Last point today, good people exercise their duties conscientiously. A duty is a responsibility that you've been given. Everybody here has certain responsibilities in life, things that you've been asked to do, assigned to do. It's your assignment in life. It might be being a parent, your job that you have, a spouse, you have responsibilities. And to exercise your duties or your responsibilities conscientiously means this. You do it by your own conscience. You don't have to be watched over or supervised to get it done. A conscientious person is driven by internal motivation, not by external monitoring. Okay? The Apostle Paul lived a good life because he was very conscientious in his duties. That when it was easy to do ministry, Paul was engaged. But Paul was also engaged in ministry when it was hard. And I will tell you, it was seldom easy. It was mostly hard but Paul conscientiously approached his duties in 2 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 11, beginning in verse 22. I want to read you a passage as we're concluding today. And I want you to look at Paul's conscientious nature. He's describing himself in relationship to a lot of false apostles that were trying to gain positions of opportunity in the church in the early days. And he's making these statements in reference to them, comparing them to himself. And he says, are they, that is those false apostles, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, Paul says, but I've served him far more. Notice this. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Let me stop there for a moment. 40 lashes would kill you. 40 lashes were designed to put you to death. 39 was the limit because that was the way to torture you to the point of death without killing you. And so five times Paul says, I got 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. I've faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and 
and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then besides all of this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. How many of you are ready to sign up for the ministry right now, okay? He said, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to be conscientious about what I do. Let me tell you something. I'm thankful that he didn't give up, aren't you? Because Paul didn't give up. We have books in the Bible like Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and 1st and 2nd Timothy. We have all these amazing books and Titus, all these books in the New Testament that give us instruction for our life, but he wrote them out of a life that was lived conscientiously. Let me tell you something. If you're going to discover your destiny, you've got to make the decision to exercise your duties, not just when some Somebody is watching you, you've got to make sure you exercise your duties when nobody's watching you, because when nobody here is watching you, God is always watching you. Okay? So Peter said, make every effort to add to your faith. Don't just stop with faith. It's the foundation for everything, but add to your faith goodness. Perhaps as you have been listening to today's broadcast, you felt a stirring in your heart, something that reminded you that you need to get something right in your life with God. The first way to start in that journey with God is to open your heart to Jesus Christ, to make Him the Lord of your life, to turn over all your life to Him. And that begins with a very simple prayer. I want to lead you in that prayer right now, and it's a prayer that you can pray right where you are. Say these words, Jesus I invite you into my life today to forgive me of all my sins. I need you. I want you. I want you to take charge of my life. Be my Lord and Savior in Jesus' name. Now, if you just prayed that prayer with me, I want to encourage you with a promise from God's Word that says, when we call on God's name, when we call on the name of His Son, Jesus, there is salvation that is brought to our lives. He changes us from the inside out. And the Bible says that if any person is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And that's what's happened to you today as you've opened your heart to Christ. Let me encourage you. You need to take the next step. The next step is to make sure that you get into a good Bible-believing church where you're studying God's Word. And make sure you get a copy of God's Word and begin to read it. Spend some time each day in prayer. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Practical Living with Dale O'Shield, Senior Pastor of Church of the Redeemer in Maryland. If you would like more information, please visit our website at church-redeemer.org. May God bless you and make you a blessing. This is WAVA General Manager Tom Moyer inviting all ministry Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.